The Elements contains language and material that may be distressing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. staring in the face of danger, the brain's hypothalamus is activated. It initiates a series of chemical releases and nerve cell responses. Adrenaline is released into the bloodstream, our heart rate increases, and our awareness, sight and impulses all intensify and quicken. But there's something else that pushes us to survive. Something beyond activated chemicals or nerve responses. It's something unique to us all. Something that can't easily be calculated. I'm Stuart Diver and this is The Elements. You just gotta fight for yourself. Everyone is an equal when they're at sea. As we go to air tonight, New South Wales is in the grip of a major bushfire emergency. Which you don't believe in heaven, I know hell does exist because we've seen it. This is water. The Sydney to Hobart yacht disaster. December 26, 1998. The start of the 54th Sydney to Hobart is a sight to behold. An icon of Australia's summer of sport, it is one of the most prestigious yacht races in the world. Each year, onlookers pack Sydney Harbour as the fleet scrambles out the heads down the east coast of Australia towards Hobart, Tasmania. 115 yachts this year, hundreds of spectator boats, thousands of people on the foreshore. There's nothing like the Sydney to Hobart. And uh, it is just pandemonium as I look around the harbour here. Yachts everywhere, boats everywhere. The race travels approximately 630 nautical miles, or 1,170 kilometres, from Sydney Harbour across the Tasman Sea through Bass Strait, into Storm Bay and up the Derwent River to cross the finish line in Hobart. For John Steamer Stanley and the crew on board the legendary yacht Winston Churchill, the start of the race is a huge thrill. Once you get an adrenaline rush, you know, that's a lot of fun. So you want to try and repeat that that experience again. And so you get that that hit of adrenaline when the gun goes and things like that. Yeah, it's full on. If the weather stayed like this to Hobart, they'd break the record for sure. But the forecast says soon it will be on the nose and blowing hard. Give them a few hours and uh, it's going to be a rough and tough race. So you are going to get varying conditions, but you know, for those boats that are on the race course for you know, three, four, five days, it's not unlikely that at some stage they're going to be tested, uh, particularly once you get you know, strong winds on the course. Uh, The fact that the the current is generally against the wind sets up very difficult sea conditions. And it's a truism of of sailing is the thing that that does damage to boats uh, and does damage to crew is not the wind, it's the sea. That's Martin James, a sailor and former Commodore of the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia, known as the CYCA, who oversee and manage the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. 
In 2020, James was given a life membership for his service to the CYCA. But back in 1998, he had just joined the board of the club and was on the water as the skipper of Team Jaguar. A Category 1 race is so categorised because you, you must be able to survive on your own. In other words, you cannot assume you're going to get rescued. So you're on your own. If you get yourself into trouble, you've got to be able to get yourself out of trouble again. True it is that um, you know, planes can be overhead quickly um, and drop things to you, but you're still on your own uh, and you've, you've got to be able to sort out your issues. A few days before the start of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart, event organisers, the CYCA, held a race briefing with weather forecasts from the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. The predictions were for light to moderate 15 to 20 knot winds along the New South Wales coast with a change expected to hit the Fleet and Bass Strait from the west, bringing winds of 40 knots. The forecast wasn't of concern for the Fleet. The previous four Hobarts began with similar predictions and passed without incident. But this year there was disagreement among experts about the location and intensity of the change. Leading meteorologist Roger Badham explains to the ABC's Four Corners. The low was definitely going to form, but was it south of Tasmania, east of Tasmania, or in Bass Strait? That was the big question mark. And how intense would it be? So it was, you know, there were quite a number of schools of thought there from the numerical models as to exactly how the situation was going to develop. It was going to happen, but where and exactly how intense? Not too sure. We got a warning of um, a front coming. And when I did speak to Canbet, um, I asked him, I said, I didn't go to the briefing, what, what have you, what's the latest with the weather? And he said, well, you're going to get a front and it, it could get 50 knots and then it's going to go back to the west. And I thought, that's a bit unusual, it never does that. One of the fundamental rules of ocean racing is that the skipper is in charge of the boat and the fate of the crew. It's the skipper's responsibility to plot safe passage to Hobart, taking into account weather information, race conditions and advice from their crew. No outside party... Not even the race officials can take over the boat. But once we start, then it's entirely up to them, the decision. We, you know, we can't ring them up and say, oh, like we, we think you're sailing into danger. Why don't you go somewhere else? You know, why don't you tack back into the coast? Because we reckon it's going to be tough in front of you. Um, nobody can possibly do that from off the boat. Only on the boat can make those decisions. So what can we do? The only thing we can do once we started the race, is to make sure that within our control, we give them the best quality information that we can. In order to finish the race, the fleet must pass through Bass Strait, a huge body of water between Victoria and Tasmania, known for its powerful currents, wild storm waves and unpredictable weather. There's a long history of shipping vessels and civilian boats disappearing without a trace in Bass Strait. Some think of it as Australia's version of the Bermuda Triangle. John Steamer Stanley doesn't get caught up in that kind of thing. For him, the Hobart is all about pushing yourself against Mother Nature. Well, it is a challenge and um, it's the elements, really. I mean, you're out there and um, you've got to beat the opposition and you've got to get on with the person around you. And so it's a great team sport. And it's probably the only sport where everyone is an equal when they're at sea. When you're on the land, you... If you're, if you're looking after the boat, a paid hand or something like that, you're, you need the owner to pay your wages and, and yes sir, no sir, but in the ocean when it's 40 knots, he needs you to get him back to land. So everyone becomes equal. So you really, it's a real leveller. December 26th, 4pm. 
On the afternoon on day one of the Hobart, a storm warning is issued by the Bureau of Meteorology. We've just received the latest computer model guidance, which uh, came out around one o'clock this afternoon. And it does show that the low will be very intense and uh, will develop in Bass Strait. And it looks like now winds are going to be up around the 45 to 55 knot mark and a, a forecast, a storm warning forecast has been issued. The weather reports are radioed to the fleet by the CYCA in what they call a SCED, shorthand for scheduled update. In 1998, the SCEDs are done twice daily and require all yachts to tune in and list their positions. The SCEDs are sent out by CYCA Race Control, who are on the yacht Young Endeavour, which trails the fleet down to Hobart. And then a thunderstorm started, a real light show started. Then it was just, it was typical, you know, thunderstorm activity with a big light show. Quite fascinating light show. And then that first night there was a storm warning. Storm warnings are, you know, pretty severe, but they're not the same as a hurricane warning, which is in reality what we got. And of course, one of the other things in, in, uh, in New South Wales is once they cross over the border, they don't call them cyclones, they call them storms, and they call them East Coast lows. And so that was one aspect of it, but we never, what we ended up getting was, was never forecasted. Now, they've had some great conditions so far, but that could change very quickly. Around midnight, they say tonight there is a big storm coming. There are gale and storm warnings out for that area of the coast all the way down to um, Bass Strait. Uh, They're looking at winds of around 50, maybe 55 knots to kick in sometime after midnight and go through to the early hours of the, this morning, uh, tomorrow morning rather, so it's going to be really rough out there, not just for the big boats, but for the smaller ones, certainly. It sounds tremendous. So given the southerly, what about the chances of a, a race record? Tremendous, Paul. I think it's going to be a rough night out there for everybody. But yes, the race record is still within sight. On the evening of day one, every yacht in the fleet lays out their strategy to tackle tomorrow's predicted storm. But a skipper is only as good as information that's given to them. In a time before the wide use of the internet and mobile phones, the boats are relying on the weather information issued by the Bureau and sent to them by the CYCA. Some yachts take closer to the coast, others plot a path in the opposite direction towards New Zealand, trying to miss the worst of the storm, but take advantage of the strong winds on the way back to Tasmania. But the majority of the fleet stays about 20 miles from the east coast, planning to go right through Bass Strait on day two. Sailors know the risk when venturing out to sea. It's one of the major drawcards of the sport, but none of them expected what was coming next. The ultimate test of human versus nature is about to play out across the Tasman Sea, and some won't make it back alive. Do you get that rogue wave? It doesn't matter what you're in. No, no. I mean, that wave picked up that boat, which was 25 tonne, and just threw it. You You won't survive that. December 27th, 1998, day two of the Sydney to Hobart. A storm rising north from Tasmania is about to collide with a storm coming south from Victoria, creating what will come to be known as the storm of the decade. The fleet are scattered across the southeast coast of Australia with Maxis Sayonara and Brindabella on record pace charging through Bass Strait. While the faster yachts are experiencing high winds and big seas, They've already passed through the main danger area. But for crews like the Winston Churchill and John Steamer Stanley, 
They're about to enter Bass Strait at the worst possible time. We had to have turned around, I reckon, no later than 10 o'clock that, that morning. So by 12, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's dangerous. And we looked at turning and we looked at it, but we decided that it was possibly safer to keep on going through it. Uh, turning around the angle going back was dangerous. Running away was dangerous, so we carried on with just the storm jib. But uh, the big thing was um, was the sea conditions. They just got out of control. But you were stuck in it then. You, you had to then really you know, hope you got out of it. Yachts at the back of the fleet are far enough behind to see what's coming up ahead and start to retire from the race, pulling into safe harbours like Marimbula and Eden. For the others, it's too late to turn back. Oh, ABC helicopter, this is Sienna. I will inquire. However, we are not that manoeuvrable. We're under very small sails. The sea is very rough down here, although we do have our engine on. I'll be back to you in a moment. Over. ABC Chopper, Roger, waiting, and uh, ABC Chopper to uh, stand aside, over. Roger, we uh, confirm that we have, uh, within 30 minutes, one rescue chopper, uh, quickly followed by another, over. Gary Ticehurst, on board the ABC Chopper, liaises with rescue chopper Helimed 1 and paramedic Peter Davidson as a daring sea rescue plays out with Davidson and the crew of Stand Aside. Across the Tasman Sea, American sailor John Campbell is swept overboard without a life jacket from the yacht Kingara. The crew scramble to pull him in, but they're travelling too fast and quickly lose sight of him. Without a life vest, and in these conditions, Campbell's chance of survival is extremely slim. At first I thought, you know, I could see the boat and uh, had not given up hope, but it was getting farther and farther away, so... uh... It was becoming a bit more tense. Uh, about the time that I was really, really starting to worry, the helicopter showed up. So uh, to my delight, <laughs> very happy moment to see them. It's estimated he was in the water for about 40 minutes when spotted by the Polair rescue helicopter pilot, Daryl Jones. Uh, we found the yacht and um, they gave us information over the radio. He was something like three or 400 metres away from the yacht. I think we picked him up about 600 metres away from the yacht. Um, and I think he's a very, very lucky man to be alive today. But not everyone is going to be so lucky. 20 miles southeast of Eden, the crew of the Winston Churchill are battling the worst of the storm. While John Stanley trusts the integrity of the boat, he knows it's only a matter of time before they run into serious trouble. I'd done all the work on the boat. I knew the boat was sound. We'd done the Hobart the year before. We should never have been in that situation. No one was ever going to survive that situation. Yeah, it was about four o'clock. And I heard uh, one of the boys say, watch this one. And of course, Richard's tried to get up and over the top. But as he's got to the top, the whole thing broke, picked us up, threw us sideways. And all the water came across the three windows, straight across and buried me in water. And, and then I raced up and I looked down on the side of the boat and Churchill had uh, what they call bulwarks, which is a, a walkway above the deck, about 15 inches high. And um, there was 15 feet of that completely gone, which is quite incredible. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Here is Winston 
Despite the best efforts of skipper and helmsman Richard Winning, a 70-foot rogue wave picks up and throws the Winston Churchill like a tin can, smashing the deck and throwing around its crew. And then the boys were tangled up around the backstay. So I untangled them, and then I said to Richard, turn the motor on, I'll race down and turn the pump on. But, but the boat, well, all that time of untangling them and then going down, the batteries were on that low side and the water had got over the top of the battery, so we did, he just only got a turn on the motor and, and that was it, couldn't get it going. The pump would have handled it quite well, but it didn't get a chance to turn the motor on. So then it was a case of having a good look at what was going on and, and we were taking water very fast and we then agreed that we got to, we'll have to get the life rafts out and get in the life rafts. But we also knew that you know, the three, there's the three really experienced folks on board you know, you don't put life rafts in the water until such time as the boat is neutralised, completely stopped and then you put them over the side. Because if you throw them over while the boat's travelling with a bit, bit of speed, the tethers break and you lose life rafts. Then you are stuck. We are getting the life rafts on deck. That was the last heard from the nine crew authorities now hold grave fears. And we're not just searching for the yacht, we're searching for life rafts, we're searching for anything in the water. With dozens of emergencies unfolding all across the Tasman, search and rescue are stretched beyond their limits. It's decided the young Endeavour, the CYCA race control yacht, has the best chance of reaching the Winston Churchill on time. But Steamer knows they can't wait any longer. The Churchill is going down. So the decks are awash and it's starting to sink. And then you just put the, put the rafts in the water, blow them up and jump in after them. On the four-person life raft is skipper Richard Winning, Bruce Gould, Paul Lumpton and Michael Ryan. While the five-person raft has John Stanley, John Dean, James Lawler, Michael Bannister and John Gibson on board. My responsibility was to two people, Michael Reiner, who I'd invited on board the boat to teach him, you know, experience forward handling. He was a butte young kid. And the other one was uh, Gibbo, who I'd invited also to come on the race with us. So Michael was in the other raft and he was okay. I, he was in it and safe. So then I swam back and John was just getting in. So I got John into, into the raft. I got in with him and I was the last one in. So we're, we're all in that one. So we... We did have a line between the two rafts, but that only lasted 10 minutes because it just snapped, which was a blessing possibly because there's no way we could have stayed together. And they took the EPIRB in with them on the, their raft and we had the other raft. That's when we took off, but uh, we were in a new one, which was a German brand. And uh, in retrospect, it was a heap of rubbish. The four-person raft has the ship's only emergency position indicating radio beacon, otherwise known as an EPIRB. In 1998, yachts were only required to have one EPIRB, and when they were hooked together, it made sense for the skipper to have it on his vessel. But now the five-person raft are out on their own. As the two rafts disappear into the storm with nine souls on board, 
the Winston Churchill gracefully dips beneath the surface. In the first running of the Sydney to Hobart in 1945, only nine yachts competed, and one of them was the iconic 55-foot cutter Winston Churchill. It was a beautiful, beautiful old classic boat built by Percy Covendale, old Huon Pine, and we modernised it to a degree, um, but still kept it quite traditional. In 1997, Steamer took on the job of restoring the boat when Richard Winning bought the Winston Churchill. Six months later, they were testing her out in the 1997 Sydney to Hobart. With Winning as skipper and Steamer in the crew, the Churchill finished 79th across the line. But any fond memories of the 97 race are a lifetime away, as the two life rafts with the crew of the 98 Churchill crash through the unforgiving sea, getting further and further away from land and salvation. When we got in the raft, we released the, the drogue, and the drogue is like a parachute on a line which you throw out to slow the thing down so you're not travelling too fast. And, of course, we threw all this out, and as it went out, it opened up and, and it took up real quick and took Gibbo's finger, sort of cut his finger to the bone a bit. And he got out of it and then the rest of the line went out and it took up and, and that was working really well. It slows the whole boat speed of the thing down. But 20 minutes later, bang, it broke. It's gone. So you're in a beach ball again. You're travelling like a beach ball. And you're at the mercy of, you know, everything. And then we took off and um, you would hear every 20 minutes you would hear the rumbling like a big wave. It was a rogue wave. It was a wave that had broken. It was like a train coming in. You could hear it and it hit you. The first time when we nearly got rolled over, we were cross-legged. And I had my feet on the bottom of other people and, and the wave came from behind me. And so it's lifted, tried to lift it up and tip it over. And so my legs got trapped. And after that first one, I broke my ankle and ripped all the tendons in my hip. And uh, we came back down again. I thought, God. I said, this is ridiculous. We laid like sardines so that we didn't, weren't cross-legged. But I was in a fair bit of pain at that stage. When I got damaged, I said, is there any painkillers in that thing? You know, it was... But there was some pills or something which I took a couple of. I don't know what they were. Whether they did anything or not, I wouldn't have a clue. While the boats behind them drop out of the race in record numbers, the crew of the Winston Churchill find themselves in the middle of a cyclone. Steamer has ripped the tendons in his hip and broken his ankle, while John Gibbo Gibson is nursing a badly cut finger that won't stop bleeding. The four-person life raft aren't having an easy time of it either. A mammoth wave flips the raft and snaps the antenna of the EPIRB. No one is badly hurt, but the EPIRB can no longer transmit a signal. All means of communication are now gone. When the CYCA race control vessel Young Endeavour finally arrives late in the day, Having heroically made its way through the thick of the storm, there's nothing to be found. The Winston Churchill has long since sunk, leaving scarce record it was ever there, and without an EPIRB indicating which direction the life rafts have gone, the young endeavour has no choice but to protect its own crew and head into land for safety. For the crew of the Winston Churchill, split across two flimsy life rafts, rollicking through huge seas and punishing winds, it's going to be a long night. We've just got um, quite bad news down below. Is that John Gibson, who is our crewman down there in the red cap, 
his father and crewmates on board a boat called the Winston Churchill, which went down and they evacuated the boat into a life raft. Um, they're still not found yet, so that may um, bear some gravity to the conditions we're experiencing. Um, one of the oldest and strongest boats in the fleet with one of the most experienced crew and they're still not found. 1am, December 28, 1998. The beginning of day three of the city to Hobart and the fate of the crew of the Winston Churchill hangs in the balance. The weather shows no sign of easing up with vicious seas throwing the life rafts up and down enormous waves, bruising and battering the crew inside. Each time they're flipped, the men need to reshuffle and get back into position in order to prepare for the next wave, all in the pitch black darkness. It's tiring, exhausting work. Then this other wave got us and then flipped us upside down. But upside down was actually quite pleasant for a change because you were covered over by the roof or the floor, which now becomes the roof. You're standing on the roof frame and you're hanging onto the sides. It's quite quite okay, but then, you know, we knew that we had to do something. Oh, I couldn't do anything. I, I was out of commission with my ankle and hip. And then we knew that it was going to be really dangerous to go out because it's night time, it's dark, pitch black, you've got to get out there, you've got to stand up and you've got to roll the thing back over again. So uh, we took a vote and one of the boys wanted to do it, but in the end I said, well, it's up to you guys, I can't do it. And then we voted, no, it's too dangerous. And then we're starting to run out of oxygen. So we said, well, there's a, a hand grip in the bottom, so in the bottom of the of the raft. And so I thought, well, if we put a slit between where it's sewed, at least it won't keep going, it'll stop where the stitching is at the ends. We did that and we got oxygen and we're okay. We're quite happy to travel on like that. The four-person raft has been flipped upside down and due to a lack of oxygen, they've created a small slit in the floor, now serving as the roof to keep a steady airflow. Problem is, if they're flipped again, the raft could completely rip apart. Later on, got hit by another big wave and it tipped us back up again. So we're right side up again. But the trouble was the split went the other way. Went right across the other way, so all of a sudden we've got no floor. So then we're hanging on to a rubber ring. Because the roof frame had gone back up above us, and I'd pulled that down and I'd... I'd I was hanging onto it and pushed it down. I was actually sitting on the side. And then I was holding one of the boys up while he was resting over the top of the tube. And we went up an enormous wave. We didn't know we were going up it, but when we got to the top, it broke. And I just remembered hanging on and hanging on. And, and then when finally stopped, I was on the outside hanging onto this ring and Gibbo, John, was the only one who was hooked onto the raft. He had his harness on and I made him hook it onto the raft hours before. And the other boys just had had those May West life jacket setups on, but they didn't have they didn't have safety harnesses and neither did I. So when I came up I looked back, it was white water and I saw a strobe light. I knew that was one of the boys. And apparently there was another one back there as well. And then I yelled out, are you all there? And I, I dived back underneath inside the thing, and the only bloke that was there was John, was Gibber. And we... <clears throat> I said, well, we can't do anything to help the boys. We were travelling too fast and it was still blowing. 
There's no way we can stop the thing. We can't go back. You're still fighting for your own survival at that stage, you know. And, and you only, you've only just survived this enormous wave and, and you've looked back and you've, you've seen a light and then you know that there's only two left out of and three are gone and you know that, what do you do now? you just got to fight for yourself at that stage. I mean, you, you would love to have turned around and gone back and picked them up, but it was impossible. John Dean, James Lawler and Michael Bannister have been cruelly pulled away into the unforgiving storm. Steamer and Gibbo grip onto what remains of the life raft, now only a small black rubber tube that barely keeps them afloat. Both men are exhausted, injured and relentlessly pummeled by waves for eight hours, but somehow they're still here. You do fight. I mean, growing up with dislocated hips sort of made me a fighter. You know, you'd always get the smart Alex at school saying, oh, you walk funny and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you, you cop all that and then try and get through that, which you do. And then once, you, once I got into sailing, well, I thought, well, I can beat them all at this. I'll have a go at this. I'd had my hips fixed up, you know, in 94, I came home and had them done. And then I had a, um, a melanoma. And then I found I had asbestosis on my left lung, which was scarring. And then there was something in my right kidney. And then with that test, they found a cancerous tumour, size of a golf ball, so they took my kidney out. That was before the Hobart race. No matter who you are or how you come to be in an emergency situation, there's one thing no one can control. Luck. Luck was smiling on me in Threadbow in 1997, but 18 others weren't so fortunate. I can't explain it, but all I know is it doesn't matter how big your grit and your fight... Unless you've got luck on your side, nothing will save you. Morning gave many here in Eden the chance to survey the damage, the mood one of sorrow mixed with hope for those still missing. Hopefully they're in a life raft and they're just, they're in the front somewhere being taken to New Zealand on a free holiday. December 28th, 1998, 3pm. Afternoon on day three of the Sydney to Hobart and it's proving to be the deadliest race in history. The day prior, Sword of Orion is hit by an 80-foot rogue wave, throwing British Olympic sailor Glyn Charles into the water. Charles is an experienced, fit athlete, but he quickly disappears into the wash and hasn't been seen since. On business post Nyad, a 75-foot wave rolls the boat violently and takes on water. Crewman Philip Charles Skeggs drowns while skipper Bruce Raymond Guy suffers a heart attack. It's a tragic toll and everyone is hoping it won't get worse. While the storm conditions have eased, it's extremely difficult for rescuers to locate the crew of the Winston Churchill. As time goes on, hopes start to fade. Until there's a breakthrough. David Gray, thanks very much for your time. What is the very yeah. latest? We have just been advised from a helicopter that's, uh, that's winched up four members uh, of the Churchill crew. After 24 hours stranded at sea, the four-man life raft with skipper Richard Winning, Bruce Gould, Paul Lumpton and Michael Reinen have been found. Winning and Bruce Gould spotted a plane flying overhead. They fired three bright red flares into the sky, but none of them alerted the plane. With their final flare, Winning managed to call their attention to the life raft. A dramatic sea rescue followed, with Helimed 1 winching them all to safety. All crew had cuts and bruises, but no one was seriously injured. 
The survivors told of their ordeal trapped in the life raft for 24 hours and being tossed from wave to wave. Although cold, tired and bruised, the four men were ready for rest and confident their mates would be as lucky. They're not going to do anything silly and I, I'm confident that you'll find them. But for Steamer and Gibbo, their ordeal is far from over. After John Dean, James Lawler and Michael Bannister are washed away, Steamer and Gibbo lock themselves in a position lying on top of the raft, locking into each other's legs to keep away from the water as much as possible. Daylight came and then we got flipped over about, oh, I don't know, probably another four or five times. But we just worked out a system of putting our feet against each other. And so you, you did that for all day. By late afternoon, both men are starting to go into hypothermic shock. Gibbo has lost a lot of blood. His finger hasn't stopped bleeding since the drogue cut it to the bone. And Steamer's ankle has swelled to the size of a basketball. There's no water or supplies in the raft to sustain them. Both are extremely dehydrated and need urgent medical attention. Yeah, we talked about various things and Gibbo liked to chat, of course. He'd talk about, you know, his, his life and the loves of his life. And, and then there was a, at one stage there was an albatross landed behind him and I didn't tell him. But it landed behind him and I thought, that's good luck. And I didn't say anything to him. I just, I knew we'd get out of it. But I just had to make, keep my faith about how to do it, you know, so I just kept quiet about that one. At about 5pm, Steamer spots a plane. Problem is, they don't have any flares. They went overboard in the wave that took their mates. With a thick cloud covering, the raft is very difficult to be seen from above, and they've got nothing to draw the attention of rescuers. Steamer has an idea. He grabs Gibbo's bright yellow life vest and thrusts it in the air desperately trying to catch a ray of sunlight and flicker a light into the plane. But just as quickly as it appears, the plane is gone. Steamer hands the life vest back to Gibbo and he slips it back on. As light starts to fade on day three of the Hobart, Steamer and Gibbo are facing the prospect of another night at sea. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. watching TV I think that morning and uh, the start of the race and they said they were going to be in for some pretty rough weather you know and uh, so I even remember commenting you know look uh, it could be interesting to see if uh, anyone gets called out for this. At the start of the race on December 26th Royal Australian Navy crewman Shane Pashley is enjoying Boxing Day with his family in Berry, just north of Nowra on the south coast of New South Wales. They called me because they knew I was at Nara and in the area, so they called me and asked if uh, I was available to go down. So we flew down to Marimbula, and it was eerie because it was so still. You know, all the, the strong winds that were causing all that damage out to sea were, were so fast that they were blowing straight over the top of the land, 
and out to sea. So Marimbula itself was very calm and it was really quiet. It was a nice summer's day. You, know? you couldn't really picture what was could be going on not far away because it was so peaceful and still there. Pashley is whisked down to Marimbula and joins Pilot Lieutenant Commander Rick Neville, Lieutenant Nick Trimmer and Lieutenant Aaron Abbott on board the 816 Squadron Seahawk helicopter known as Tiger 75. Tiger 75 is a sight to behold, almost 20 metres long and painted with black and yellow tiger stripes to reflect the 816 Squadron crest, which depicts the head of a Bengal tiger. For the crew of the Tiger 75, their mission is simple. Search specific box areas in Bass Strait and make sure there's nothing there. Clear one box, move on to the next. It's methodical, time-consuming work. But time is exactly what Steamer and Gibbo don't have. You could picture all these different aircraft in these different boxes and at different heights all searching. And the further out you got, you know, the water was, you could see that it was chopping up. It was started getting windier and the, and the sea state was pretty horrendous. So you could all of a sudden you go, wow, this is, you know, this is real. We found a couple of the yachts with the, the beacons on them but uh, they'd already been abandoned. You know, we found business posts and there was two bodies strapped to the deck already. Yeah, the, 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 the ship had been abandoned, but they'd left the bodies behind to recover later. And just seeing you know, a yacht just wallowing around in the ocean with you know, people on deck but not moving, lying on the, on the deck and the, the dismasted with a spinnaker in the water beside it, just sort of you know, sailing around. And just Again, you're seeing stuff like that. It's a strange, macabre sight, even for highly experienced naval officers like Shane Pashley. Our aircraft is capable of direction finding as well. We tuned into the emergency beacons, and that was the, a very eerie thing: is hearing all those all those beacons going off, thrill, haunting sound, and uh, and to know and that many beacons, knowing so many people are in trouble, it was quite freaky. December twenty eighth, nineteen ninety eight, nine p.m. Night has fallen on day three of the Hobart and Steamer and Gibbo's chances of survival are fading by the minute. In the darkness, all the civilian rescue planes leave the area with only the maritime aircraft remaining to continue the search. Despite the sophisticated locating equipment on board the Tiger 75, the crew have almost zero visibility. Can you imagine how dark it is 100 miles, 80 miles off the coast? When when you've got cloud cover and everything, there's no stars out. You can't see the hand in front of your face, basically. The light is almost absorbed by the darkness, so you just have this little shaft of light underneath the aircraft from the searchlights, and you can only see those waves that are in the torchlight. You know, it's, you don't know what's going on around that, and it's, but you can see it was pretty big seas. And then I saw a plane coming, and it was just getting on dark. So I said, John, turn your, turn your light on. And I put my strobe light on to a fine beam and I just pointed it at the plane coming at us. And I just kept on going, kept on going. And then all of a sudden, as he sort of went past us, he dipped the wing. And I thought, John, I think he spotted us. He's just dipped the wing. Canberra. Five three, uh, we have identified a, a life raft uh, coming to the boat. Roger. How far is the uh, helicopter away? One three miles from the data. Over. Roger, any sign of uh, POV? Express you uh, 
So we'd been out all day, I was still in the wetsuit, and we were flying home. That's when the P-3 reported seeing a light. The P-3 aircraft had, they spotted a, a light, and that light was actually John Gibson flashing torch. And he was waving it frantically at the P-3. The P-3 saw him, flew over, over them a couple of times, identified that there was a couple of guys in a life raft. Just before 10pm, Rescue 253 located Steamer in Gibbo. Remarkably, they used personal torches to pierce the dark cloud night sky and alert the plane flying kilometres above. But finding them is only half the job. This is still an incredibly dangerous operation. For Shane Pashley and the crew on board Tiger 75, their role has only just begun. We didn't know what to expect, really. Uh, we're told that they thought there was a couple of guys, someone in a life raft, and they were obviously alive because they were flashing a torch. So that's what we knew. And uh, it was when we got there and saw the sea state and we got down close enough to them that we could see that there was two people in a life raft. That's all we could really tell. RCC Canberra. Let's get to five and three, uh, one, two, and two, Roger, so two POB. A life raft, over. Uh, Roger, we need some information from those two possible, uh, quickly uh, confirm whether they're from the top Winston Mitchell, over. All of a sudden the chopper arrived and it was dark, but it was like something in a, out of Star Wars, this many, all these lights and noise and pretty incredible, but it was quite horrendous. Tiger 75 is going into what can only be described as a wild and violent washing machine, with water rising and falling at an alarming rate, strong enough to take down the chopper. If they make one mistake, even the slightest misstep, it could be all over. Shane Pashley locks his safety harness into the winch cable and prepares to be lowered down into the muck. When it was time for me to get her down, it was just that moment that I always remember when Wall sort of winched in a bit of cable, so it put me outside the aircraft, and I, you swing around and grab onto the door, and I just looked inside the aircraft, and just that little dull red glow of the, the overhead lights in the aircraft, and the guy was looking at me like, what are you doing? And I just looked back in the aircraft and thought, I cannot believe I'm about to do this. <laughs> and then they just winched me down, you know, and I just saw the watching me as the, and the aircraft disappeared above me and, and I just got winched down about sort of 60 feet, 80 feet below. And I'm just a passenger now. It's up to the guys in the aircraft to get me to the life raft. So as you can imagine, they're trying to deal with maintaining a, a position over the top of the life raft while the life raft's moving with the flow of the ocean and also the wave action coming up and down. The life raft's a couple of feet below me and it's 50 feet below me and then it's 30 feet behind me because it just picks up on the next wave. So the guys are chasing the life raft around and trying to get me into it. Not much I can do about it. And as I'm spinning around, yeah, I'm looking down, then I'm looking out into the darkness. I'm going night blind. I can hardly see anything anyway because of the light. I look up at the aircraft with a big searchlight underneath it. So basically, I'm a passenger. The Tiger 75 tries to steady, but the waves are rising and falling unpredictably confusing the onboard navigation system and thrashing Pashley around violently on the winch. Shane came down the wire 
before I could say, watch it, there's no bottom in it, he jumped over and he'd gone straight through. Of course, he didn't re not realise he didn't have a floor. And then he said, who's going first? I said, John, you've got to take John, he's got an injured hand. So he put the sleeve around him and then all of a sudden they took off and then they went sideways. And I thought, that's, what are they doing? So I had the winch cable over my shoulder. So you imagine how much movement's going on and I'm getting wrapped up in a thin cable that would, you know, could garrot me and take my head off if it got wrapped around my neck. And I put the lifting strop over the top of his head and luckily we got it all the way on him. That's when the aircraft then had its flight control failure. So I got sort of we got pulled out of the life raft fairly unceremoniously. Pilot Rick Neville has lost control of the Tiger 75, sending the chopper into manual control. He fights to keep the chopper steady, but he's struggling to dodge the waves and keep it in the air. Pashley and Gibbo desperately cling to the winch cable. If they fall off now into the middle of the dark ocean, they're doomed. And then we just got smashed like through one wave. And yeah, these waves are like 40 feet high and just going through a wave out the other side, all of a sudden you're 40 feet out of the water and then just smash into the side of the next wave. Um, so it was real inside of a washing machine. While the guys were busy fighting to, to get the aircraft sort of back under control, I was fighting to hang on to, on to Gibbo as, uh, as we were getting smashed around by the waves and, and, and you know, flying one minute and then smashing into a wave the next sort of thing. I didn't know they had a problem. I was just hanging on. Rick Neville regains control of the Tiger 75, allowing the cable to winch Pashley and Gibbo safely back into the chopper. But the job isn't done yet. They still need to get steamer. Rick wouldn't let Shane came back down the wire to get me. He said, no, he's going to have to get himself out. So they dropped the wire and I put the, uh, the ring on. But as I put the ring on, I also put a line of the raft in somehow. And as we're going up, I was taking the raft up with me and I thought, God, this is dangerous. So I just put my hands in the air and bailed back out into the ocean and they didn't realise what had happened. And they're saying, what the hell's going on? What's he done? We thought maybe he was just really tired or injured. Basically, I said, we'll give it one more go, but if he can't get the strike by himself, I'm going to have to go back down. Steamer falls back into the wild sea. He's all alone now. His head bobs up and down in the rough. He can barely stay afloat. With a broken ankle and a dislocated hip, he's totally exhausted. But Steamer isn't giving up now. It's just not his way. So they dropped it again and, and I grabbed it, put it on, and they pulled me up. Nearing midnight on December 28th, Steamer and Gibbo are hauled into the chopper and whisked back to the coast. They've been in the water for over 30 hours. Gibbo's finger is wrapped up while Steamer is given painkillers and a bandage for his ankle. Both are suffering mild hypothermia and shock, but their own health isn't their main concern. Their biggest focus at the time, Gibbo especially, he was very vocal about it. He wanted a map. He said, I know where the other guys are. And he, he wanted to see a map. And he was determined that we should continue, uh, you know, looking for the other guys. But, you know, when you, we had, we had to get, we had 70 mile transit roughly to get these guys back to Marimula. So we knew there was, there was seeking out there as well. So we told him we've passed the information on to another aircraft. They were going to continue the search. We had to get this boat back to, back to hospital basically. Yeah, Gibbo was, he, he was adamant, you know, this is where they must be, you know, sort of thing. Last known position. But yeah, they'd been in the water for a day. So mm -hmm. that position probably changed quite a bit anyway. 
As Tiger 75 flies steamer and gibbo back to Marimbula, Shark 20 is sent out to look for John Dean, James Lawler and Michael Bannister. It's been nearly a day since the three men fell overboard and no one is expecting to find anything. But during the night, they make a tragic discovery. This morning, Winning and his three colleagues woke anxious for word of their missing mates. They're in a good raft and if they... Yeah, they'll be all right. I'm fine. But then confirmation that two bodies have been recovered. So the guy they found definitely was one of, one of our ones, yeah. For the skipper, another grim task, telling the families of their loss. Oh, this was dreadful. Sure. The best ending was nine of us ashore, but um, our three guards just, um, it's pretty terrible, really. <laughs> it's very sad that we'd lost three good mates. That was, that was you know, we'd... Because when we got up in that chopper, I said, oh, we've got to try and go back through that, up that track and see if we can see them. But I knew in the back of my mind that there was no way they could have survived. In total, six men died during the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race. They were John Dean, James Lawler and Michael Bannister of the Winston Churchill. Philip Charles Skeggs and Bruce Raymond Guy from the business Post Naid, And Glyn Charles from Sword of Orion. The bodies of John Dean and Glyn Charles were never recovered. Of the 115 yachts that started the race, only 43 made it to Hobart. 24 boats were abandoned and later recovered, while five yachts sunk to the bottom of Bass Strait. In total, 55 sailors were rescued at sea in what remains the largest peacetime operation in Australian maritime history. But the worst part of it was I had to identify two bodies. They never found a third, but I had to identify two of them, which was which was um, interesting in that one of the faces uh, was um, a very angry look and the other one was the greatest smile I've ever seen in my life. When Bruce Gould and his three companions finally returned to dry land, they cracked open a beer and waited for what they thought was the inevitable return of their five mates. By today, that euphoria had turned to agony. Well, with their spirits so high last night, you know, we were, I mean, we were pretty devastated this morning, to be honest. And, um, I mean, I mean, my view is that they, you know, they should have all made it. And if, if a life raft had worked, they, they would have made it. I mean, what pisses me off more than anything is that, you know, they are in a brand new raft and, um, you know, the floor collapses in it. And, um, you know, by all accounts, they should have survived. I mean, we proved that you can survive the bloody raft works. Well, I reckon there would be a few questions asked about life rafts, I can tell you that. In the aftermath of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht disaster, a coroner's inquest was launched, while the CYCA held their own internal investigation. For John Steamer Stanley, it was a chance to prove the life raft that swept his three mates away was not fit for Category 1 ocean racing. As part of the inquiry, Steamer was asked to travel to Tasmania to help water police test the life rafts. And they were testing the rafts in a big swimming pool. And this, the chap who ran it all, um, he's standing on them and pulling them up the right side up and nothing's going wrong. And, and I said, well, hang on. I said, how about you put three people inside that one and try and flip it over? Anyway, they agreed to do that. And they ran lines in to find out how much oxygen was inside. And, 
And the bloke that's reading the mantra saying, oh, they're running out of oxygen. I said, they've got miles of bloody oxygen. Don't worry about it. And he kept on going, kept on, and he's just about ready to flip it over and the rope broke, the tether broke. And I looked at the importer and I said, oh, it was bad luck. Next, they took the life raft out to sea to test it in real-world conditions. But even with a flat ocean and wind blowing only eight knots, the rafts failed miserably. The rafts used in the 98 race were never used again in a Sydney to Hobart. I knew the thing was either rubbish, and we proved that it was. The CYCA's internal investigation was completed in June 1999, and the club implemented a raft of changes before the next race. They included better safety precautions, increased qualifications for sailors, and minimum requirements for the stability of boats. The CYCA also installed the Green Cape Rule, requiring boats to report into race control before entering Bass Strait to confirm their fitness to carry on in the race. When the coroner released his findings in December 2000, he was critical of the CYCA's management of the race and the Bureau of Meteorology for their lack of clarity with the forecast. The CYCA's Martin James explains. So, you know, an awful lot came out of it, a lot of it good for the sport. Uh, certainly we run the race differently now than we used to then um, and we're you know, more confident now uh, that the boats that are going to sea are well prepared and that the crew are well prepared and educated for what they're going to uh, potentially experience in the race. So out of you know, an enormous tragedy, we've managed to develop some good things for the sport. One of the major changes to come from the coroner's report was the way the Bureau of Meteorology report weather forecasts. Previously, the forecast included only average wind speeds and wave heights. The calculation was created by taking the average wind speed and wave height over a 10-minute period and averaging it down to create a figure, a standalone number. But what that figure didn't account for was the maximum wind gust or maximum wave height during that 10 minutes. Put simply, in 1998, the forecast read, wind gusts of 45 to 55 knots, when it should have said, average wind gusts of 45 to 55 knots, with maximum wind gusts up to 80 knots. While the Bureau assumed the fleet knew the forecast only accounted for the averages and not the maximums, they were wrong. They then turned around and said, oh, you know, that's only an average. You've got to, you've got to put 20%. No one had ever heard that before, so... There was a, yeah, a bit of give and take in the whole setup at the end of the day. I mean, everyone had to lift their game. And, and like everything, you need, you need a disaster for, for things to change, sadly. For Navy crewman Shane Pashley, there was a nasty surprise waiting for him when they got back to Marimbula on the night of the rescue. So I went into the shower area and to, to get my wetsuit off. That's when I noticed uh, that my dive knife was missing off my leg put two and two together that when I'd gone out of the, got pulled out of the life raft, that my dive knife had snagged on the side of the raft and uh, basically had a, a quick dislocation and, and relocation of my knee. So I did the whole thing with a, a busted knee. <laughs> For his efforts in saving John Stanley and John Gibson, Shane Pashley received a Naval Bravery Award. But as much as he is thankful for the recognition, being in the spotlight isn't really his thing. We're not the dress-up fancy kind of guys. We just like to slip around in our overalls. We're not, we're not there to be the centre of the attention. <laughs> a 
A few weeks after the tragedy, Steamer took off with his partner, Roz, to Melbourne for a holiday. It was on this trip that things finally caught up with him. I had a, one day down there where I had a bit of a um, blackout, or Roz says it was because she's a nurse. She said it was just a delayed reaction, just washed through me. She was there to help me through it all because there was no one else. Oh, one of my mates, he wanted to get the best counsellor in town. He said, I've got the best counsellor. I said, I don't need a counsellor, I need a bloody physio for my... <laughs> and in the end, you know, I had too many good mates around that I didn't need counselling. Got on with it. In 2019, the Australian National Maritime Museum put on an exhibition to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the running of the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. The main feature of the exhibition was the presentation of the Tiger 75 chopper from Steamer and Gibbo's rescue. It hangs impressively above the rest of the museum, its vivid tiger stripes restored back to their former glory. At the launch, Steamer was reunited with some of his rescuers, including crewman Shane Pashley and commander pilot Rick Neville. That was great. It was good. It was, it was just a lovely evening we had together. And sadly, Gibbo couldn't be there, but uh, he was there in spirit. Yeah. Proudly displayed in the living room of Steamer's Northern Beaches apartment is a framed photo of the Winston Churchill and her crew in Hobart after the 1997 race. It's a happy, triumphant photo, perfectly capturing the bond sailors forge at sea. The camaraderie is fabulous. It stays with you for years with friendships. And Hobart is is just one of those real testing races. And then when you get there, you celebrate you know, what you've done and, and the friendships just go on forever. That Churchill one was my 16th Hobart and so, I'd experienced quite a few finishes and, yeah, sometimes we never got there, sometimes something would break or something like that, but that was all part of it. Of the nine people that left Sydney Harbour aboard the Winston Churchill on the afternoon of December 26, 1998, only skipper Richard Winning, Bruce Gould, Paul Lumpton and Steamer are still alive. I haven't caught up with Paul, Richard's mate. I haven't seen him since um, 98. I see Richard a bit. I see Bruce all the time, Bruce Gould, well, he's always going somewhere because he's got a beautiful boat that won the Hobart race. So I see him that hasn't changed him one little bit. <laughs> While some sailors vowed to never compete in an ocean race again after 98, many, like Bruce Gould, carried on, bigger and more determined than before. For Steamer, 98 was his last Sydney to Hobart, but he still loved sailing. It took him off the sidelines as a disabled kid built his confidence and gave meaning and purpose to his life. Despite his brush with death, you could say that sailing is the reason John Steamer Stanley is still with us at all. I have a hell of a lot more respect for the ocean. I've always had respect for the ocean. I think probably one of the reasons I survived was all that experience over the years of sailing. And then growing up with disabilities and having to fight a bit and all that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's helped. So, yeah, no, I think I've had a pretty fortunate life in a lot of ways. The Elements is hosted by me, Stuart Diver. It's written and produced by Tim Russell. Audio production and original music by Slade Gibson. Researcher and assistant producer is Claire O'Halloran. Thanks to the National Film and Sound Archive, Channel 7, Channel 9, the ABC and the CYCA for the audio used in this episode. 
Special thank you to David O'Sullivan and the Australian National Maritime Museum who gave us access to their interview with Navy crewman Shane Pashley. This show would not be possible without the kindness and generosity of survivors and rescuers. We thank them and pay tribute to all those lost at sea.